From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. When it comes to the song Dixie, right, like I have a relationship to it where it, for me, is like the sonic version of the Confederate flag. ReSound is a remix of audio stories, music, found sound, and sound bites we love from all over the world. Why haven't you been answering my texts? Sorry, just getting them all now. JC took us on a field trip to the sun, and the text can't keep up with the speed of light or something. Today, we've culled some goodies from the zillions of offerings out there. Like, for instance, Dixieland. Do you really wish you were in the land of cotton? Then we explore the common denominators between two different kinds of waves, migraines and tsunamis. And we finish the show with a modern take on Romeo and Juliet separated in the afterlife. I've never felt so alone. Crying emoji. Hang in there, boo. You'd think that we know pretty much everything about the American Civil War by now. It ended in 1865, after all. But turns out, boy, do we have a lot to learn. And who better to teach us than Third Coast friends Jack Hitt and Chenjirai Kuminyika, who you might know from their audio work on This American Life and the series Seeing White, respectively. Together, Jack and Chenjirai host the Peabody Award-winning podcast Uncivil. In each episode, they examine one widely accepted assumption about the South, the war, or the influence of the war through time, then reveal that much of what we assume or had been taught is not true. In this episode, Jack and Chenjirai put the anthem of the Confederacy, Dixie, under their microscope. There are symbols of the Confederacy that still appear in popular culture, like the Stars and Bars flags or the monuments to Confederate generals. But there are other remnants of the Confederacy that are still with us. Today, we're going to talk about one of them. And it's one that some people might not even connect with the Confederacy. We sent our producer, Saeed T. John Thomas, to ask people about it. I'm a journalist working for a history show. And, and I was wondering if I could play you a song and just get your thought on like what you think about it. Okay, awesome. Officially, this song is called I Wish I Was in Dixie's Land, and during the Civil War, it became the unofficial anthem of the Confederacy. The song is still heard in the South today, and so when you play it for certain folks who grew up down there, you often get a reaction like this. Makes me feel good. Yeah? Yeah. Goes back to the roots. What roots? Well, I'm from South Carolina, so I mean, it's... I mean, down in Dixie, it's, I mean, it's an upbeat song about the roots of everything, from everything, not just one particular person, but everybody. But of course, because of the song's tie to the Confederacy, it also provokes another very different kind of response. It's kind of sad when I hear that. I think about s- slavery and the things that my family went through when I was a little girl. What, what kind of things? Working for the the white man, you know, being maids in their houses and farm workers, you know, used to um, pill tobacco, as as I remember as a child. 
But that's not a song you would play on your downtime. Oh, no. No. It reminds me of slavery and war. Hey, Chinch, do you remember when you first heard it? I mean, to me, that song is kind of like the anthem of white supremacy. You know, I mean, I know it was a popular song for the Confederacy. But, you know, my first introduction to it actually was when I was little. And I used to watch, like, the Dukes of Hazzard. What? Yo, for like a brief period, I was like really into the Dukes of Hazzard. I mean, after we put the rebel flag on there and stuck that Dixie horn in there, there couldn't have been nothing more appropriate than General Lee. The General Lee, you know, Daisy Duke and all that. You know, and it was like, nah, 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 nah. you know, I was like, yeah, I was like kind of running around singing that song. And probably I'm sure my dad saw that. It was like very quickly I was banned in the house. I couldn't, you know, there was no like there was no Dukes of Hazard. This is our secret, by the way. You can't tell anyone this. It's, yeah, OK. <laughs> So, you know, growing up in Charleston, South Carolina, to me, like the song was just, it was everywhere. It was in the ether. You know, like if you're walking down the street, you might pass a a, a wedding, you'd hear the song. Or if somebody scored a, a touchdown at a football game, hell, you'd actually hear people whistling it. In real life, people actually would street. whistle Dixie. Yeah. I mean, that people did, you know, it's a catchy tune. And, you know, the song goes through like different periods. And I think when I was growing up, it was, it was, there was a sense that it had been kind of cleansed of its evil past. Uh, you know, almost neutered, right? I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why you could hear it on the Dukes of Hazard. It would not be played on any TV show today, right? But even with that effort, the history of the song is kind of inescapable. It always manages to somehow resurface, no matter what you do. I mean, it's not for nothing that this song was the musical score to the, the pro-Clan epic, Birth of a Nation, a century ago. And only a few months ago was the name of that white nationalist gathering in Charlottesville, the Dixie Freedom Rally. This song has a long history in America. It's a history I thought I knew. But so far in making this show, we found that every aspect of the Civil War that we've looked at has had this other hidden history. We wondered if Dixie was the same. And so I started digging into the song. And of course, turns out the history of Dixie is a hot mess. And everything I thought I knew to be true is wrong. So all my life, I have known three basic facts about Dixie. It was a Confederate anthem. It was written by a Southerner. And it was written during the war. Wrong, wrong, and wrong. It turns out it was a pop song written by a Yankee in Manhattan before the war. I learned all this from Christian McWhorter, a researcher at the Lincoln Presidential Library. So Dixie is a minstrel song. Uh, Daniel Decatur Emmett, the guy who wrote it, was one of the founders of minstrelsy. Minstrelsy, of course, being... White people painting themselves up in blackface, going up on stage and doing songs built around a caricatured image of African-Americans. It's a fundamentally racist style of music. And Emmett, he was the one who came up with the idea of a minstrel troupe, that instead of having one guy in blackface on stage, you'd have a whole bunch of guys, uh, and they would all play different characters. In every minstrel show, the last song was called The Walk Around, the big crowd-pleasing foot stomper with all the musicians on stage. And Dixie was written as one of these. 
And these songs were incredibly popular with minstrel audiences in all the places where these shows were big. Where were most of these minstrel shows performed? The big cities in the north, New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, you know, Boston, they are a northern phenomenon. That's right. Dixie wasn't born out of a southern racist tradition. It was born out of a northern racist tradition. Most of those people in that white audience thought of minstrelsy not as a caricature, but as a genuine representation of what African-American music in the South was like. Reporting. Journalism. Yes. So the song had a huge following in the North. But the question is, how did it become a Confederate anthem? Well, first, it broke out of the minstrel shows and went national. It was this huge hit in 1859, 1860. Mm-hmm. Today, it would be the number one song. The, the way music worked back then was not the way it works now because there was no recorded sound. And so if there was a hit song, like other performers would pick it up and start doing it, right? And so one of them was a guy named Jay Newcomb. And uh, Jay Newcomb toured the South in uh, 1860 uh, and ends up in New Orleans where he performs Dixie. And all this happens right around the time that Lincoln gets elected and the Southern, the Deep South at least starts to secede. And so they're, you know, they're literally ripping the Union's old anthems out of their songbooks. They're looking for a good replacement. Well, Well, here's this song, Dixie. And at least the, you know, first couple verses and chorus uh, sure sound pro-Confederate to me, so let's uh, let's start using it. The lyrics do tell a story, but almost nobody knows them. Only the chorus gets sung. In Dixieland, I'll take my stand to live and die in Dixie. And once Confederates started using it, it went from pop song to anthem. But here's what really launched it. On February 18, 1861, the Confederacy swore in their first president. It gets played at uh, Jefferson Davis's inauguration in, in Montgomery, and that kind of gives it the unofficial you know, seal of approval, and then it, it goes from there. So the anthem of the Confederate States of America was a northern song written in Manhattan by a Yankee. That's a lot to wrap your head around right there. But hold on, because none of that is right either. <laughs> People always debate about who wrote songs, but in the case of Dixie, there's a really good reason to go down this rabbit hole. First, you know that New Yorker who wrote it, Daniel Emmett? When he told the story of where the song came from, here's what he'd say. It was a cold and rainy afternoon in New York City when I suddenly heard the first line in my head. I wish I was in the land of cotton. Old times there are not forgotten. And the whole song sprang all at once onto paper. And that was his story. But in Emmett's hometown in Ohio, there's another story about where this song came from. And it goes like this. So Emmett is from Mount Vernon, Ohio. And there's a African-American musical family around the same time Emmett is growing up there called the Snowdens. The story is that this family had this song uh, that had Dixie in it and that Emmett must have heard it growing up. He committed it to memory and, you know, he's got to write a song one night in 1859. He goes ahead and writes down this song that the Snowdens taught him. And there's good reason to believe this version is the true version. The Snowdens were really well known. People came from all around to the Snowden Farm to hear their concerts. They were basically the Jackson Five of the mid-19th century Upper Ohio Valley. 
But besides them being famous, there's another reason Emmett might have heard of them. The Snowdens live next door to Emmett's grandparents. In Mount Vernon, the fact that Emmett stole this song has long been an open secret. There's this oral tradition there that the Snowden family uh, taught Dixie to Emmett. This is codified in the two graves. Emmett's grave, which the United Daughters of Confederacy later put this big monument over it saying, you know, the man who wrote Dixie. And then something like a few miles away from that is this grave for the Snowden family. And it says they taught uh, Dixie to Emmett. Taught, it says. The Snowdens may have written it, or other black musicians may have. In those days, especially among African Americans, there wasn't much concern with authorship. You wrote a song, and you taught it to people, and then they taught you a song. The whole idea of claiming credit only starts to matter if you live in Manhattan, where a song gets sold as sheet music and can make you famous. All right, Jack, so... I just learned a black family might have written Dixie. You know, that's a thing. I mean, <laughs> but it's, here's like, usually when I learn that white folks have stolen black culture, I'm glad we're finally getting our credit. And in this case, I'm not sure that I want credit for Dixie, right? I mean, and some of it is like, I don't know what to do with that, right? I'm not going to start playing Dixie. I don't know. I, like, maybe I need to hear from somebody else, like another person of color who, who knows more about the history. Actually, could we, would it be possible for us to find a Black musician who maybe knows this history and has a different response to it? The, when it comes to the song Dixie, right, like I have a relationship to it where it, for me, is like the sonic version of the Confederate flag, right? <laughs> there's an uncomfortability inherent with the song. And I'm just wondering if you have any of that. Um, I don't have any from a personal level, but like, what does it mean for a black person to be playing the song that was probably written by a black person, but in the middle period has been co-opted by white supremacist ideology. That's weird. Like it's a, that's a weird sandwich. I wanted people to sit in that, and I wanted to set it firmly on people's plate so they could regard it and have their own reactions to it. This is Justin Robinson. He's one of the founding members of the band, the Carolina Chocolate Drops. And to understand what first attracted Justin to the song Dixie, you have to understand how he came to love the style of music in the first place. It started with the banjo. I'm from North Carolina, so it's the sounds of it are always around, whether you want to hear them or not. Purely, it was a sonic, uh, a sonic love affair at the beginning. And then I learned more about the history later. But Justin knew the real roots of this music. The banjo comes from Western Africa, so Senegal, Gambia. My ancestors may or may not have played that instrument. I don't know. Um, and it kind of doesn't matter. To be able to hold that instrument in my hands now, knowing that this Senegalese instrument, Gambian instrument, traveled all across the ocean and is sitting in my hands in North Carolina now is kind of amazing. And it was this sense of excitement about these instruments and this music that brought Justin to the Black Banjo Gathering, a place where he knew he could meet other Black musicians who loved them too. Uh, people played and people talked and people met each other and... Um, there, I knew that there was going to be a black fiddle player, Joe Thompson, there. 
And so I wanted to go meet him. When Justin met Joe Thompson, Joe was in his 80s, and he'd been playing string music since he was a kid. He was sort of one of very few, anyway, who played the music traditionally, who got it from his father, and his father got it from his father, sort of passed down through an oral tradition. Learning the music directly from Joe had a real impact on Justin. He'd always been a fan of this style of music, but playing it with Joe made him want more. Justin started spending every Thursday night with Joe and a couple of other musicians who he met at the banjo gathering. And we were in the country, and we were in North Carolina, and we were, you know, in a hot-ass house in April. Um, because he's old. He was old at the time, and you know how old people keep their houses sometimes. It was the three of us. It was me, Dom, and Rhiannon, and sometimes um, Sule. And his wife would be there. And it was an all-black space. And that is the context in, in which it sort of, it's its genesis. It was these nights in that hot Carolina house that eventually made the chocolate drops. They became a band dedicated to playing music in the black string tradition. That's Peace Behind the Bridge from the Chocolate Drops album, Genuine Negro Jig. Justin and the other Chocolate Drops wanted the audiences at their shows to feel the music they played as a Black tradition. And so when they thought about Dixie and how Daniel Emmett likely stole the song from a Black band, the Snowdens, it made sense to perform it. Having that additional information about the Snowdens and about their story and, and all that made it a richer internal conversation. The other members of the band would talk about, and we would all talk about its origins. It was, you know, a contentious piece of music to be playing, certainly by Black people. Yeah, because probably nobody Black has played it since the Snowdens. Certainly not in any popular way. So yeah, we did it to be provocative. As a reclamation a way to tell a different story about the song. I thought it was part of a larger story that we were telling. The story of how things are misappropriated and then resold and repackaged with their original contents sort of hollowed out. Justin says he would avoid the lyrics of Dixie altogether, so no one sung them. They just played the instrumental music the way they imagined the Snowdens playing it. When y'all would play the song, was there a lot of setup? Nope, I almost never said anything. Mm. I let people come to their own conclusions. So I've been to a couple Chocolate Drop concerts, and here's what you have to know. A lot of times, almost everybody in the audience is white. And so I had to ask. I guess what I want to ask you is, let me ask it like this. Periodically, for whatever reasons, white folk will invite you into a coon space. And when they do that, it's never like, I'm going to invite you into a coon space. You're going to have to break that down. I've never heard that term used in that particular way. What does that mean? Okay. Well, you know, like to me, what I'm talking about is like their folks will invite you into a project that's about performing something for their pleasure. Maybe even oh, sure. they invite yeah, okay. you to dehumanize yourself for profit, for their pleasure, to deepen their mm-hmm. sense of identity. Uh-huh. So I guess the question I'm asking you about about this is, how do how do I'm interested in what insights you have about how to na- navigate that? 
you're sort of hitting on the head of what it means to be black in America or indigenous in America or you know, sort of any other group who is having to navigate these things about how to, how to deal with sort of whiteness and keep your own humanity in the same time, mm. um, which can be complicated. Um, but our ancestors certainly figured out how to do it, and I don't think I'm any less smart than they are. Mm. Um, and so we're talking about these sort of coon spaces, as you call them now. As the chocolate drops, we have played in many, many such a space, spaces that I would rather forget. It was a, it got, it got weird and it continued to get weirder. Um, is there a particular moment where you were like, that you remember where you were like, this is, this is like, this is really weird? Yeah, I can tell you the time. It became a little too much. We were in South Carolina. Now, my parents are both from South Carolina. And as most black people have their roots in South Carolina or Virginia. We got to the festival grounds. It was a bluegrass festival in Charleston. I, we got on the, the into the property. I was asleep in the van, and I sat up straight because I didn't know at this point. I didn't know where the gigs were. I just got in the van and shut up. Um, and I was like, "Where are we?" My my spirit felt wrong, and as we pulled up, I was like, "Oh." It was a place Justin had known about since he was a kid, Boone Hall. Boone Hall is uh, one of the first plantations that are in that that is in Charleston, the big fancy place like Gone with the Wind, Terra kind of plantation. And then they got on stage, and there was nothing but white people in there. Um, and so that was like, we might be doing something wrong. <laughs> That's what I felt in that moment. I was like, this. The irony is not lost on me that we are at a plantation playing fiddle and banjo for an all white audience. In Charleston, South Carolina. I was like, this is so palatable. They love it because it makes them feel comfortable. I walked through the crowd to go get something to eat um, at one of the concession stands. And I don't know how many times I heard the N-word. Like, as I walked through the crowd, it was so crushing. This feels like not narrative disruption. This feels like replication. This experience at Boone Hall was one of many, and it all started to affect Justin. And I became resentful of the audiences. Um, mm. And so that's, then I started to mess with my own feeling toward the music, which I really couldn't handle. I like the music. I just do. As a me human being, Justin Robinson, I like how the music sounds. Um, and so it was the, 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 the public of that was messing with that love. I can't, I can't in good conscience play old-time music in public, uh, and I haven't for quite a while. I stopped playing the music pretty much altogether. So it's heavy listening to what happened to Justin and just like the effect it had on his relationship to this music that he loved so much. Because Justin created a possibility for me to have a relationship to Dixie and not just Dixie, but to that kind of music. But then when you see what happened, right, it almost like confirmed a lot of the fears that I had, you know, but that's actually not my takeaway totally. Like, uh, I mean, on one hand, yeah, I definitely my recommendation is if you're black, don't go play Dixie on stage in front of white people. But I, I feel a, a little bit sad you know, Justin stopped playing the fiddle music altogether, like old time music altogether. 
And I have a sense of what was lost from that, you know. Here's the thing I think about with Dixie, right? Here's what makes Dixie complicated. Like, on one level, it's real easy just to be like, forget Dixie, it's racist and everything. But I I think about the Snowdens, and I think about that town, Mount Vernon. I mean, somebody took time to write in that gravestone that Snowden taught Dixie to Emmett. And to me, that's representative of this Black community that wants us to remember. And I know there's people in that community that do remember. And I just feel like if I say... You know, forget Dixie. Am I betraying them in a way, right? And that's that's what makes this like difficult for me. And and I I don't you know I'm not sure what the answer is. I know I think for me, it's I, I just have to figure out a way to sit with that discomfort. For Justin, he found his own solution. I just moved out to the country, which I love. It's wonderful. Ever since I've been out there, the banjo has just been speaking to me in this really particular way, saying, play me, play me, play me, play me. He said that, you know, sometimes he'll go out. Like, he talked about this one time when he went out. And, you know, he walked down. He has, like, this fire pit uh, that's, like, about 100 yards from his house. Uh, In that instance, it was kind of a chillyish night. I walked myself down there with my, I think, a small jacket on. Yeah, you know, with the banjo kind of slung, you know, over his shoulder or whatever. So I made myself a little little baby fire. And, and he just would play. I can conjure up my own memories of playing with Joe. That's who I learned those songs from. That's sort of my most, my deepest connection to this music is through him. It connects me to... It connects me back across the ocean to, you know, African ancestors. And I can appreciate its its sound. It sounds good. The song was produced by Chris Neary, Saeed Tijan Thomas, and Chiquita Pascal, and hosted by Jack Hitt and Chenjerai Kuminika for their podcast, Uncivil, from Gimlet Media. Third Coast celebrates a menagerie of audio work, nonfiction, fiction, narrative, freeform, linear, nonlinear. So when someone is able to try something new and different, express themselves in a way we haven't heard before, we sit back and say, bravo. In this next piece, Adrian Lilly addresses experiences of pain that are invisible, recurring, and sometimes hard to describe. So she found a way to do that in sound. Here is Migraines and Tsunamis. Hyperactivity and some people's sluggishness or yawning. The beach, the ground. 
ground starts to shake. Some people notice they become crabby. A loud roar, an ocean roar. They urinate more frequently. They crave certain foods. You'll notice that all of a sudden the ocean starts to recede and recede and recede and expose the ocean floor. And often they start to have a heightened awareness of their senses. So lights seem brighter, sounds seem stronger, and they start complaining that their family's too loud or the workplace is too loud, when in fact nothing has changed. They're just more sensitive to it. It's the incense, it's the ferns. You didn't like the color of your mini golf ball. It's the hot dogs are too small. The National Weather Service has issued a tsunami warning. I repeat, National Weather Service has issued a tsunami warning for coastal areas of northern and central California, including the following counties. Sonoma. Marin. Patients themselves were sort of full of metaphors. San Francisco. One patient spoke of himself as having, a very sophisticated patient, as having become a Mobius strip, Napa. he said, in which his inside became his outside, or Klein bottle, in which the inside becomes the outside. will help the pain and I have not been able to find it mm. high is not good today we tell about headaches the pain that strikes almost everyone at some time. A migraine can be mild, but it also can be so severe that a person cannot live a normal life. I don't know if you can tell or not, but I am in aura. Um, yesterday was prodome. I missed the, the excessive emotional. I missed it being prodome. Well, prodome is, is the stage of migraine before aura and before my, the migraine actually hits. About 60% of patients experience the prodrome, although in fact, many of them don't realize it. You might experience irritability, restlessness, depression. Mood swings, unusual food cravings, and compulsive yawning. Or a combination of these feelings right before a migraine begins. Sometimes the need to use the bathroom is also a symptom of this stage. There are several warning signs, and this is the most important part of today's lesson. When you're at the beach and you see the water receding or pulling back from the shore. This whole bay just literally went dry. As far as you could see, even the, the big junk out there, that would have been sitting on the sand. So if you see an unusual disappearance of water, immediately move inland, away from the ocean, and head for higher ground. Um, the other thing is a loud roar, an ocean roar. Uh, again, another natural sign that a tsunami uh, could be, on, or probably is, on its way within a few minutes. But some movement up there caught my attention out of the corner of my eye, and so I looked directly up there, and what I observed was a, uh, like an atomic explosion. I'm just sitting there, and all of a sudden, I see this zigzag, this colorful zigzag line appear in my visual field. The 
first time it happened, I thought I was going crazy. Because what is that? Like, it's not something you see every day. Phase two, aura. This next phase may involve neurological events, known as auras. Auras can begin 20 to 60 minutes prior to an actual migraine. Patients see metallic lines, changes in sensation, motor deficits, and speech abnormalities. Heavy divertation tonight. We had a very Darison bite. Let's go to Tarasin for the bit. They had the pet. However, auras don't occur for every migraine sufferer. I, have, I sometimes have such an olfactory aura myself with a migraine. There's an overwhelming smell of, 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 of butter toast, of, of hot butter toast. This is actually part of the tsunami way. Much of the beach is exposed, and animals, seashells, and rare things that you might not see at everyday beach life are able to be seen. I was completely unprepared. Um, I looked at my fingers, and my pointer finger was missing, and so I knew I am actually getting a migraine. Dude of 8.9 has been detected in eastern Japan. Arrival time from the initial wave is estimated for the following locations. Seaside, Oregon, 0724 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Charleston, Oregon, 0715 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Once again, a tsunami warning has been issued for the coastal areas of Oregon another patient said if only I could find the eye of my hurricane my, in other words he felt that he had become sort of a storm unpredictable this notion of, 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 of a storm was, was often in, in my own mind Three, attack. This phase involves pain and other symptoms like light sensitivity. If left untreated, this phase could last up to 72 hours. Tsunamis can last up to, as I've said again, more than eight hours. To monitor the situation and will update this bulletin every hour or sooner as conditions warrant. Migraines begin when neurons in the brain start misfiring in response to internal or environmental triggers, releasing chemicals that cause blood vessels to swell and dilate. Pain receptors surrounding these vessels transmit pain signals to the higher centers of the brain and create the first sensation of pulsating headache pain. It looked like just a big wall of water. Migraines and Tsunamis was produced by Adrian Lilly. It first appeared on the Canadian podcast Constellations.
an online sound art project and podcast that presents work from international audio artists. Adrian turned traditional storytelling on its head in migraines and tsunamis. Our last story has done the same, only with a much different subject, Shakespeare. Now, lots of writers have tackled Shakespeare in an attempt to modernize and update the work, setting one of the plays in the Bronx or rewriting the story in rap. But our next story is something we at Third Coast hadn't heard before, and it completely delighted us. On this episode of the podcast Pen Pals, a show that puts famous pairs into bizarre correspondence, two star-crossed lovers meet up in the afterlife via text message. Here's Romeo and Juliet. Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? Damn it, stupid autocorrect. Hey, where the hell are you, Romeo? Tried calling but barely getting reception. Literally had to climb Mountain of Skulls to get like even one bar for texting. You getting anything? Juliet! Hey, sunshine. OMG, can't believe you were only faking being dead when I found you in the crypt. Never got the email about the plan you all cooked up. My bad. The poison I took tasted like fart juice. But when you woke up and saw me dead and stabbed yourself keeling over my still warm body, smiley face with hearts for eyes emoji. Watched recap on the in-flight entertainment system coming up. They didn't even charge for headphones. What do you mean, flight? Reclining massage seats, hot eucalyptus towels. And you know how I love me some cucumber eye masks? Gotta cool those lids. And guess who I sat next to? Prince! Who knew dying could be so glam? LOL, yeah, real glam. My Greyhound's AC broke down and somehow every seat was right next to a toilet. Can hardly wait to see your dumb face. Come meet me next to the giant gargoyle, you know, the one that looks like Margaret Thatcher? Oh wait, that is Margaret Thatcher. Um, how about we meet under the rainbow tree in the middle of the courtyard instead? Be there in ten? Oh, (laughs) it just started raining chocolate sprinkles. Again. This place is the best. Okay, climbing down from this stupid bone pile, rounding corner of pig farm, walking past screaming souls wading through river of their own blood. Wait, did you say tree? But there are no trees here. And pretty sure that's not chocolate raining from the sky. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, you don't think. Where the fuck for out thou, Romeo? Heaven! You? Welcome to hell. Roaming charges are $99 billion per second. Oh, come on. Text messages, 50 cents. Track your data usage at burninginhellforeternity.com. Oh, and abandon all hope ye who enter here. Juliet, you there? Juliet. Juju? Julie Pat? Juicy Jules?
He there? Finally figured out this nightmare of a Verizon package. Hey, light of my afterlife, my son. How you holding up down there? Ugh, the seventh layer of hell is the worst. I'm sharing a ratty two-bedroom with this freak Freddy Krueger, eyeing fucking Rand and a group of ladies who call themselves the real housewives of Inferno. The house reeks of vodka and stale dreams, and it's a real hassle to get any time in the bathroom. What? Sorry to hear that, babe. But guess what? Ran into my pal Mercutio at the Pop-Tart Buffet this morning. Some dude on his ultimate team got his wife to come up to heaven through some sort of visa or something. Seriously? Good thing we got hitched when we did. I'll go to the immigration office first thing tomorrow. Everything's shut down here today for a big welcome parade. Another dictator must have died or something. Parade, huh? I gotta say, hell sounds pretty dope, IMHO. I mean, at least there's no fire and brimstone like they warned us about at Verona High. I knew that was just a bunch of BS to scare us out of sucking face behind the bleachers. Eggplant emoji. No, no brimstone, but it's still pretty nasty. The only person who doesn't actively spew insults at me is our neighbor Candace. She's here for killing her cheating husband with a croc shoe. Do you have any idea how many times you'd have to hit someone with a croc to cause death? Shocked face emoji. I'm seriously gonna lose my mind down here. I've never felt so alone. Crying emoji. Hang in there, boo. Look, you see the moon? If ever you're feeling like you just can't cope, look up and remember, I'll be looking down at the top half, even from billions of miles away. Yeah, I see it. It's full. Kind of pretty from here, and it's infernal glow. <laughs> anyway, it's getting late. I should go claim one of the sofa beds before I get stuck bunking with Freddy and his wandering fingers. Everyone at the apartment is getting pretty sick of him creeping into our dreams. Like, dude, get some other hobbies already. Good night, good night. Parting is such sweet sorrow that I shall say good night till it be morrow. <laughs> morrow? Uh, this dude Shakespeare has been teaching me some hip-hop rhymes. You like? Eye roll emoji. Kissy face emoji. Love you, Roro. Hey, sunshine. How'd it go today? You get the visa? Ugh, I wish. They said I'll have to get my passport stamped in all seven levels of hell before any sort of ascension can take place. It could take a whole month. Ro? Ro? Sorry, didn't hear the text come in. They got the perpetual Enya soundtrack cranked to 11 up here. A month? That's like forever. Let me uh, grease JC's palm a bit. See if he can put in a word with his pops and speed things up. He's out of town this weekend at a surfing tournament over in Paradise Beach, but you know what? I'll hit him up when he gets back. Dude doesn't even need a board. Just hovers over the water. Gotta go, boo. Tupac's playing a show at the Pearly Gates, and I want to scarf down this pizza pocket before it gets cold. OMFG, yum. Everything here is gluten-free. And Freddy has a peanut allergy, so we can't keep anything fun in the house. Oh, I wish I was there with you. We'd make our own fun in the house, if you know what I mean. Like that night I climbed in your balcony window. Oh, getting a boner just thinking about it. What are you wearing, by the way? Uh, my standard-issue orange jumpsuit. Hot. <laughs> LOL, you're such a goof. Yeah, but I'm your goof. Good night, sunshine.
at just getting on the bus to gluttony, the, the sixth level of hell to get this whole visa thing rolling. Turning off my phone for a bit to save the battery, but we'll check in later, hubby. Oh my God, still feels weird to call you that. Safe trip, XOXO. Love ya, wifey. Welcome to the sixth level of hell, fatso. Leave the donuts at the door. Baby got back. Da 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 da. Baby got back. Hey, Ro. Just checked into my Airbnb. It's nothing like the pics. Give me a call when you get a chance. Shoot, can't. Used up all my long distance minutes. Spent all day chatting with Elvis, who lives over in Cloud Nine. The king is up there? Huh, kind of thought he might be down here in Gluttony. You get your visa stamp? Yeah, I had to win a hot dog eating contest to get it. Have a crazy tummy ache now, but it was worth it. Candace, the Crocs killer, gave me a chest bump for not bulimying out and sticking my finger down my throat, but then the chest bump itself made me heave all over the place. <laughs> Lol. Wish I could have been there to see that. Oh, I miss you so much I could just die all over again. <laughs> Ugh, it's torture being away from you two. Although they do make it kind of impossible to be depressed up here in paradise, you know. Sometimes I just want to climb into my 100,000 thread count Egyptian cotton sheets and sulk my day away. But then Gandhi shows up with a YouTube video of a pug puppy and a baby chick becoming best friends with an adorable three-legged goat. OMG, I love Gandhi. So jealous. Really dreading heading to level five tomorrow. It's for people who've committed sins of vanity. And Candace says you go up two sizes of Spanx and break out in pimples the second you cross the border. Well, even the pussiest of pimples couldn't make you ugly. Wish you were here so we could Netflix and chill like old times. You see that moving shadow up there on the moon? You mean the eclipse? Nah, that's me doing my sexy moon dance. Just for you. Welcome to level five, you ugly piece of shit. You're so vain. You probably think this song is about you. You're so vain, you're so vain. Probably think the song is about you, don't you? Don't hey, boo. You up? Yeah, just binging on Beneath the Clouds. It's this reality show where you get to spy on people down on Earth. Damn, folks be messed up. How was your day, sunshine? FML, it is so depressing. There are mirrors everywhere with overweight women making sad noises while they're forced to try on ill-fitting jeans. The ground is covered with long blonde hair and a bald Joan Rivers keeps running around trying to scoop it all up. Plus my hotel's smack in the middle of this athletic field full of ladies doing push-ups all day only to have their underarm fat grow flabbier and flabbier. It's so Sisyphean. Not to mention a little sexist. Everyone down here is a woman. And not just in this level. You know, I'm starting to think you ending up in heaven has less to do with you being a Montague and more with me being a girl. Huh? What are you on about? Romeo, you killed a bunch of dudes and yet I'm the one down here? You're being paranoid, babe. There are women up here in heaven too, you know. Oh, are they the kind that hand-feed gentlemen grapes all day? Oh, let me guess. They have perky double Ds, and you can see their nipples poking out through their togas. Tell me they aren't wearing togas. 
American Apparel. Angry face emoji, angry face emoji, angry face emoji! Totally, dude! See you at the mud wrestling tonight. Whoopsies, that last text was meant for Tybalt. Did I tell you he and I buried the hatchet over a friendly game in Nerf Ball? Wait, my cousin is up there? But he stabbed Mercutio to death. I rest my case. He used to pull the wings off of butterflies when we were kids and chase me around with mutilated frog parts. And you're still holding a grudge about it? You know, maybe if you were more forgiving, you'd be up here too. JC is big into that stuff, you know. Oh, is he big into that stuff? Or is he just big into stuffing young girls' muffins? It's a fool's paradise up there, if you ask me. Aw, oh, come on, sunshine. Don't be like that. Here's a little pic that might cheer you up. It's a selfie from that time we busted into your parents' liquor cabinet, and I held your hair back while you puked in the bidet. Aw, that was sweet. And here's another one. A dick pic? What? JC told me girls like that kind of thing. Why don't you send me a titty pic back? Jules? Juliet? Hello? Hey, Ro, bad news. There's killer traffic between the 5th and 4th today. Like, literally. All the killers have to spend a whole week sitting in traffic as part of their punishment, so the borders are all backed up. Hey, babe. Bumped into Candace again. She's actually kind of sweet when you get to know her. Like, she's been teaching me a lot about personal responsibility and acceptance. I think we're going to share a hostel room tonight. Miss ya. Kisses. <laughs> Me again. Yeah, still kicking around the circle of wrath. Lots of yelling, but it's all part of this new therapy run by Screamo. You know, from the munch painting. I've actually been feeling much better. You know, Candace thinks I was only using you on Earth to rebel against my mother's stale life choices. Isn't she a riot? Hey, boo-boo, where are you at? Looking at our crescent moon and thinking of you. Hope you're having a good night. Hey, haven't heard from you in ages. Forget to charge your phone or something? Ro, you there? Ro? Ro? WTF, Ro? Hey, baby. Hey, baby? Why haven't you been answering my texts? Sorry, just getting them all now. JC took us on a field trip to the sun and the text can't keep up with the speed of light or something. The motherfucking sun, Jules. We took turns roasting marshmallows to see how fast they would burn up. And Shakespeare's whole hand went up in flames, but then JC made it grow back so then we all wanted to try. And of course Tibble just had to try with his dong. <laughs> we died. It was the funniest thing ever. Oh yeah, sounds real fucking hilarious. Uh... Are you mad at me? Would it have killed you to leave your frat bros behind for two seconds and write me back? Just haven't had time to write. Doesn't mean I'm not thinking of you. Hey, look, I'm not asking for you to write a bloody Shakespearean rap sonnet. I just want to feel like we're connecting. Or have you not noticed that I'm literally clawing my way through the circles of hell for you? I mean, did you even ask your boy JC about speeding things up? Or were you too busy making wiener jokes? I'll ask him tomorrow. I swear. The angels are hosting a 90s night, and he'll def be there. Hey, look up, sweets. Yeah, 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 the moon. I see it. I see it. Look, I gotta go. Candace's aunt has an N with the visa people, and I'm getting bumped up to level two. Gotta catch my ride.
Hey, did you butt-dial me yesterday? I heard a lot of weird grunting. You're not cheating on me, are you? Huh? Oh, no. Uh, Candy and I were just passing through the Circle of Lust. It was basically a Pornhub loop running 24-7. Seems like we might not have been doing things quite right that night back in Verona. Well, maybe you can teach me some new moves once you get up here. When's that gonna be, you think? You almost make it to the first or what? Jones in for a classic all-night makeout sesh with those lips of yours. I don't know. Our bus broke down, so now we're literally hitchhiking through World War II. What are you up to? Oh no, let me guess. Moshing with Hendrix? Karaokeing with Sinatra? Doing jello belly shots with Cosby? Whoa, what's with the tone? I think somebody's been hanging out a little too much with Candy, the murdering head case. What, so she killed her husband? It was only because she was heartbroken? You of all people should appreciate the lengths people go to for love. Or maybe you only know about the lengths people go to for lust. Do you even still want me there? Or are those American Apparel Angel Babes company enough? Ugh! Don't be cray! Look, this long distance thing has been hard, but we're almost home free. Did you see the Instagram of the graffiti mural I made with Warhol? It's you and me! The night we met at the ball! When we couldn't take our eyes off each other, remember? Yeah, I remember. Welcome to the first level of hell, traitor. Hey, Ro. Finally made it to the first. Betrayer circle. Yay. Funny, you being there and all. Huh? Bumped into your guardian angel at the pub last night. She was getting all loose-lipped on Moscow mules, and uh, she said she looked into your soul the night we died, and you had real doubts about the whole thing. Whether I was worth killing yourself for. You know, all this time, you've been questioning if I want you up here. But really, it's you who doesn't want to spend eternity with me. So sue me. I had doubts. I wanted us to be together alive. But dead? That's a lot to ask. I mean, why'd you have to go and mess up the whole faking my own death plan back in Verona? I did this for us. And now we can be young forever. I was excited to get older. Like, maybe grow as a person? What are you doing up there with your precious eternal youth? Playing Nerf ball and what, doodling with spray paint? Having fun is what it's all about up here. You'll see. So what, we're just gonna party for eternity? Is that really what true love boils down to? Uh, Name one thing we even did together when we were alive that wasn't just making out. Okay, look, you're right. Maybe I'm not fulfilling my potential up here, but you know what? Heaven is boring anyways. How about I come down to you? I annulled the marriage, Ro. What? Why? Maybe in another afterlife, things could have been different. But you know what? I, I like where I'm at. Hell is hard and ugly, but I feel like I'm actually getting to know myself for the first time ever. I'm going to head back to the seventh. For good. But... What about the moon? It's just a fucking space rock, Ro. So that's it? We just never see each other again, like, ever? I guess not. Oh, shit. What is this feeling? I didn't think you could be sad in heaven, but... 
Juliet, I'm sad. I'm really sad. Yeah. Me too. Fuck. It's raining chocolate sprinkles. Again. Everything's always so sticky up here. You know, I was watching the latest season of Beneath the Clouds last night. There was an episode about Verona. Seems like our deaths made peace between our families. Well, that's something, right? Look, um, I, I gotta go. Okay. You know, the sun was pretty great, but you'll always be the brightest light I know. Goodbye, Ro. Uh, say hi to JC, and uh, tell God he's a sexist prick for me, will ya? <laughs> okay, will do. Broken heart emoji. Broken heart emoji. Sad pile of poop emoji. Wave goodbye emoji. Romeo and Juliet featured the voices of Paul Rust, Noel Wells, and Seth Morris. It was written and produced by Mira Burt-Wintonic and Crystal Duhame for the podcast Pen Pals, a series that puts unlikely pairs in conversation, like, say, Nancy Drew and Wonder Woman, Prince and The Bachelor. What could possibly go wrong? This reimagining of Romeo and Juliet won a 2018 Sarah Award for Excellence in Audio Fiction. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Dennis Funk with Isabel Vasquez and curated by Johanna Zorn and Maya Goldberg-Safer. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. With so much to listen to and so little time, Resound. All diamonds, no rough.